0: it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator. Dr. Manuela Wellafman is the chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Native Arts
1: at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She has over 15 years of curatorial experience, and she has co-curated an exhibition that opened just this month, and it's titled Indigenous Futurisms, Transcending Past, Present, Future, please welcome and give a warm welcome to Dr. Manuela Welloffman.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. We have here Philip Deloria. Um, Philip is Dakota, he's a historian and Harvard first tenured professor of Native American and Indigenous Studies. He's the author of several books, including Playing Indian and Indians in Unexpected Places. His most recent book um, examines the work of his great aunt, the Dakota modernist Mary Sully. Next to him, we have Susan Kite. She's um, Oglala Lakota performance artist, visual artist, and composer. She's a research assistant for the Institute for Indigenous Futures and a Trudeau Foundation Fellow. Her current research focuses on Lakota epistemology and artificial intelligence. Welcome, Kite. And to my right, we have Aja Kushwar Duncan. She's a poet, writer, and social justice coach of Ojibwe, French, and Scottish descent. Her debut collection of poetry, Restless Continent, won the California Book Award. She's also a librettist for the Experimental New Opera, opening this weekend at Los Angeles State Historic Park. Welcome, Arja. So I would like to begin um, our discussion this evening with um, Brief remark that um, that, um, futurism and um, also survivance or survival is a really important theme, an important topic, not only in contemporary native art, but also in literature. And uh, I can imagine that many of our audience members are not that familiar with the term indigenous futurism. And uh, I think there is no real and no one answer to this. Uh, I would like to hear from our panelists um, what is your interpretation? What is your idea of indigenous futurism? So, whoever wants to start? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll start, I guess. Um, First of all, can I just say how happy I am to be here, and what a great space this is, and thank you all for coming out. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, settler colonial theory, and particularly the ways that settler colonial theory predicts the structural erasure of native people, kind of in any and all instances across time. Um, uh, and I've been thinking about that, in particular in relation to sort of civil rights narratives and African American narratives that are really dominant in American culture um, right now, and this is a kind of a hard thing um, to think through. So. If one assumes that um, Native people will always be erased in one way or another in American society, in American culture, um, and that, that erasure is complicated, right? Sometimes um, it has to do with sort of displacement, sometimes it has to do with appropriation, sometimes it has to do with vanishing and disappearance um, a lot. Then it feels like if we ask ourselves, how do you push back against that? How do you resist that? Um, it felt to me like it sort of tracks into a kind of anti-colonial and a kind of decolonial sort of way of thinking. That the anti-colonial way is really to oppose that thing which is right, to challenge the status quo, to take it on. Um, the decolonial is to sort of think past that and to imagine new possibilities, right? And both of those tracks really—I um, have a little diagram here, with, but uh, it has two little areas. What's interesting to me is that both those tracks sort of force you to think about the future. Um, if you're doing an anti-colonial kind of move, right, you're challenging the erasure that always puts Indian people in the past, and one of the most effective ways to do that is to claim that there is a future for Native people, not just a present, but a future. And so hopping over the present, or situating ourselves in the present and insisting upon a future, that feels like a really strong and important kind of move. And a decolonial move... Um, as well seems to point in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So it it seems to me like you've got this kind of thing that happens around indigenous people in settler societies that produces different kinds of forms of resistances, and both of those forms, those major forms of resistance, others, um, lead you to think about what the future looks like, and not just to think about what it looks like, but to claim the future as the, one of the most important things that we can say in a sort of resistance dialogue. Um, so it's not surprising to me then that futurity has really emerged, I think over the last 50 years even let's say, as sort of native political movements have you know, risen and fallen, but in general sort of escalated uh, you know, over time, that futurity would be this really important emergent kind of theme, and that we would all be thinking about it and imagining ways we can grab onto it, represent it, explore it, Think about what it looks like. So that's how it looks for me.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other opinions? <clears throat> um, that's great. I love that, Phil. Thank you. Um, I think that, that one of the things that, that is um, most potent for me right now is also that <laughs> what, is, what is clearly being um, requested of indigenous people is to help save mm-hmm. settler colonialism in its manifestation, which is. Um, Our global climate change, you know, it was like one could have predicted the trajectory and here we are and so What's also interesting I think about the indigenous futurism or Afrofuturism is that all futures require us now Mm -hmm. and so there's actually this um, interesting moment where I experience native people both saying yes, we actually know how to deal with climate change and shifting conditions of land and animal and plant, right? Um, private ownership complicates those, <laughs> those activities, but we actually know how to do that. And um, we don't actually need you for our future. So there's, like, there's, a, there's a, a potency and a power mm-hmm. that happens um, that I find really interesting and exciting.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously I agree. I, I was thinking, I mean, one of the things that is constantly, I work at the, I've worked at the Initiative for Indigenous Futures and in, mm-hmm. out of Concordia University. And one of the things that um, we always talk about there is seven, seven generations, mm-hmm. which is a common saying in um, kind of um, our communities where you always want to plan seven generations ahead. And so, but to, I, that's kind of now more of a pan-Indian shared concept, but to me, what's very important about futures um, is, is that it's these ideas of futures, indigenous ideas of futures, Lakota ideas of futures are already built in to our epistemologies, mm-hmm. to our ontologies. So the solutions are already there for being able to consider what's going to happen seventh generations down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they're, they're completely built in, where some ontologies and some epistemologies, they aren't built in, mm-hmm. or they've been pushed aside. And so I think when we talk about like, uh, climate change panic or like, kind of this apocalyptic panic that we see in sci-fi uh, artworks and movies and ponderings mm-hmm. and they, they come out, I mean, it's merged in this time period, um, but there are answers in a lot of indigenous epistemologies because that, that considering was already, was already there. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you all mentioned really important points. I think the main difference between many indigenous um, concepts of futurism, the main difference between those concepts and non-native concepts is, I think, what Grace Dillon described as slipstream, that they are parallel, alternate worlds, that it's possible to Be in one time, but at the same time uh, consider also um, the past, the future. It's all connected. And that's how how I understand um, those are some of the differences. Uh, And uh, Jukait mentioned um, that, uh, especially for your work, many of those ideas are deeply connected to Oglala belief systems. And I think we have some images of your work
3: here. Can we have? (laughs) Okay, that's me and my crazy-looking knees um, uh, performing. I, so I'm, I, my major, like, futurist artwork that I've done is called Listener. And in that, um, it was came out of a, an initiative for Indigenous Futures or Aboriginal Territories in Cyberspace, which is, their, which is another um, group, uh, a seventh-generation character design workshop. And so I was like, okay, well, in seven generations in the future, what would a Lakota woman have that was an AI... Uh, apparatus attached to the body, and it's definitely a hair braid, because, (laughs) (laughs) duh, and so I made, so I made a hair braid that includes um, a computer and uh, uses machine learning to interface between sound and, and video, Um, and yeah, and I, and I guess what's important to me from, from that project in thinking about Grace Dillon's Slipstream idea is Mm -hmm. that our ontologies are like extremely contextual and local and ideas of future um, that are locally based come from our specific context come from the land itself Mm -hmm. and so you that's why you can't have like a overwhelming and united indigenous future it's Mm -hmm. very specific because we we can't get that ethics without Mm -hmm. the specificity of of place, in the respective mm-hmm. place. I guess I should show the other slide. Yeah, there's also, I think, slide a, mode. <laughs> a slide
2: of telling work uh, oh, yeah. that's currently on view at the, so the Museum of one. Contemporary Native Arts.
3: Next slide. Can we move to Please. the next image? Next? Mm -hmm. Trying. trying. There it is. Oh, there it is. Okay. So this is is actually, uh, Manuela is one of the curators of this show that's right now up in uh, Santa Fe at IAIA. And so this is a collaboration between myself and my partner, Devin Ronenberg, um, who's here, uh, who's um, also a native Hawaiian, Okinawan. And so we, it's an, I don't even know how to go into it. It's a lot of hair braids and (laughs) it's again has machine learning process with handmade circuits that are built in to the artwork, and we're, this is the view from below, and so then the hair braids come out um, and are 15 and feet long. And it's an interactive work, really, yeah. so viewers or
2: guests, they can touch and move some of
3: those braids. Yeah, and then, so that feeds, that affects the system, and the mm-hmm. system chooses how to respond based on the machine learning. Mm-hmm. And so this is from my A- AI research, and um, trying to develop good, what is, to ask ourselves, how can we develop a good relationship with AI, Mm. considering AI as an actual material, Mm -hmm. um, something that is mined from the ground, um, uh, that, what are the, what's the ethics in that context? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I understand um, this installation is also learning, actively learning. It's not actively learning, it learns in each specific, location specific, so we teach it Okay. And a new data set in each mm-hmm. place. And mm-hmm. then we're, we haven't gotten to the point where that would be really exciting when we're able to get there where we can have it actively learning. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that possible will be though. the future development. You will work on more installation yeah.
2: pieces. Mm-hmm. And is the um, ultimate goal to, div- to contribute to
3: um, AI? Yeah, I mean, um, my ultimate goal, I mean, I don't have aspirations in the field of AI, but I do have mm-hmm. aspirations in t- inserting Lakota ontology wherever is possible, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is actually very, I think, a Lakota thing to do is to constantly insert. Um, mm-hmm. Say like, no, we have answers, and they're very ethical. I hear my cousin laughing in the audience. <laughs> 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 um, because we're right, we, we do have some good ethics going on. And the, <laughs> um, and so one exciting thing that's happening now is the Center for, um, the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research is about to publish um, a, a very big collaborative project um, that comes out of Concordia University, which is led by Jason Edward Lewis, and that is um, indigenous protocols and artificial intelligence position paper. So, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. and um, Do you see yourself as part of a larger movement in contemporary Native art? Um, young Native artists working with cutting-edge technology, developing cutting-edge um, technology, also to claim a space in our contemporary
3: art world? I hope so. Mm-hmm. I hope that more people realize that they can. Mm-hmm. That I mean, we, there's a lot of. I'm, I'm coming very late to a very long game of people car, like carving out the road to allow to let us be academics, to let us um, make contemporary art that yeah. isn't um, doesn't look traditional or whatever that you know that stupid line, and then to allow <laughs> us to use computers in our art, mm-hmm. and then to show it. And so this is a, this comes after many, many, many. People not being able to do this. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, you worked or uh, contributed also to the, to the Institute of
2: um, for for Indigenous Future. Can you um, tell our audience a little bit more about that important organization?
3: So the, um, the initiative, the IIF, as um, is called, is uh, directed by Jason Edward Lewis and um, Skawanadi, who's another artist. Um, mm-hmm. They they co-direct um, AbTech, Aboriginal Territories in Cyberspace. But IIF is a multi. I'm a, I'm a research assistant for them, and they're a, a multi institution um, uh, group that funds artworks. They have symposia and talks and interviews and basically exploring anything indigenous futures. Mm-hmm. And now there's an Inuit futures um, group that, that has also formed, um, which is Heather Goliorte. Great. Yeah, we have some more slides and artworks to look at. Can you um, just skip through them. Oh, yeah. This, Go is, ahead. this is Telling Rock. Uh, EA. Um, go to the next one. It's got lights. <laughs> um, we like to do, this is my cousin Corey Stover and I, um, and we did a blessing, a welcoming blessing for the sculpture in Omaha. Um, that's me with my moccasins like 10 sizes too small, just busting out of those. Um, next. <laughs> um, this is the essay um, which is Jason Edward Lewis, Noelani Arista, Hawaiian historian, Archie Pachawas, who's a Cree performance artist, and myself, that um, was published by MIT Press. So if you want to know more about um, that work, Making Kim with the Machines is where you should start. Mm. And finally, I think um, this is kind of my research into how to build anything ethically, especially in AI, illustrated by Kari Noe, and these are streams of protocol Mm. proposed. And then, I think finally, yeah, that's it. Great, thank you so much.
2: So now we are traveling um, several decades back. Um, I know we have some fabulous slides uh, featuring the work of Mary Sully. And um, I would like to start with um, Phil, with a question, um, so becoming Mary Sully can be considered um, an example of indigenous futurism from the viewpoint of an important, but unfortunately overlooked, uh, Dakota modernist, Mary Sully, um, who was mainly active during the 1920s, 40s. Um, She had a very fascinating life, and um, I I learned so much about um, this time period, 1920s, 40s, uh, we all, or many of us have probably heard how difficult it was for female artists in general, but being a native, Dakota female artist must have been even more difficult. Can you talk a bit about Mary's, Mary Sully's life?
1: Sure. So she, she this is my great aunt, um, mm-hmm. Susie Deloria, and um, she chose to use the name Mary Sully. Mm-hmm in this really interesting way. Her grandfather was Alfred Sully, um, who was a fairly vicious American military commander, but also was the son of Thomas Sully, who was the sort of foremost kind of celebrity portraitist of Antebellum America, painted out of Philadelphia. So her aspirations for an artistic career took form in sort of claiming this particular name for herself, which had this kind of artistic traction, or she she hoped that it did. So she, uh, you know, she was, um, she suffered from certain kinds of sort of um, mental or sort of psychological kinds of ailments that are a little hard to pin down. She was super shy. She, um, sometimes i have thought of her as sort of the Emily, Emily Dickinson, the Indian Emily Dickinson of the visual arts. She hung out in her bedroom a lot and looked down the stairway, um, see who was there, Um, but Between about 1927 and sometime in the mid-1940s or so, she did 134 of these pieces of art that she called personality prints. Maybe we
2: can uh, have a look at some of those examples.
1: There you go. Hmm. Right, so this is the form of them. The Hmm. top one is always a kind of representational or symbolic kind of image. The middle one is always um, a kind of geometrical, abstract kind of panel, Um, oftentimes draws a lot from uh, Northern Plains Indians uh, women's aesthetic traditions, and the bottom one is always this interesting, complicated. I think kind of overdetermined, um, visually uh, kind of uh, kind of image. So I've taken this in the book. I take this as the kind of master key to everything because I think it's the most explicitly political. A lot there's two or three others here, so we can you can get a better sense of it. But um, uh, actually, if you want to skip to the next slide, <laughs> this is the top panel. We can get a closer uh, closer view of it. <laughs> there we go, oh yeah, so, so um, you know, it's, what's interesting, I think that, you know, she takes in a lot of influences from American modernists, um, Charles DeMuth, who does a series of poster, what he calls poster portraits of different personalities, um, the Stieglitz circle, these folks are all doing these kinds of things where they try to represent the personality of a person. This isn't that, right, because this is a kind of historical theme. Um, But I think in this you can see a couple of other kinds of aesthetic traditions, the mural tradition of Diego Rivera and the Mexican muralists in particular. Um, Aaron Douglas, uh, if you know his sort of series about, you know, history of African American life, you can see the sort of silhouetted figures of modernist anxiety. So, you know, here's a historical progression that moves from a kind of uh, native indigenous position into the hardships and the desperation of a reservation regime into sort of the modernist anxiety of native figures of this period, sort of little children pointing upward, people Mm -hmm. who have died and clearly not making it, the anguish of people raising their hands up. And then this kind of, you know, industrial capitalist you know, kind of feet literally stomping these people mm-hmm. down, whether it's kind of like toxic smog, sort of like, so it's a, it's a fairly kind of political representation. And if we could go to the next one, what she does, this is pretty typical, is she takes the themes that are laid out in the first image, and she um, sort of reworks them into these geometries. and. A lot of her panels, these second panels, really were meant to be industrial design kinds of panels. She wanted to sell them as wallpapers and Mm -hmm. linoleum patterns and things. This is so clearly not that, right? Mm -hmm. But she's taken that kind of, uh, the color that was associated with that native indigenous kind of band. And she's sort of taken the color combinations, right? So pinks and purples, right, are part of Lakota sort of color theory that line up with reds um, and other colors. And as so you can see, these are the colors of the flesh. These are kind of modified. So there's this kind of Indian band that sort of emerges here. It's a little garish. And all the other things have been um, sort of distilled. And then if you go to the bottom one, uh, she's flipped the whole thing sideways and made it really quite abstract. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the outer edges, you can see those are the feet. You can see a blue jeans with a rolled-up cuff, the feet sort of stomping down, the color schemes, brown and red, that match those sort of figures of modernist anxiety. And then the barbed wire, the sort of hurts of history, really emerges as the sort of single, a single really important element. But the native color, right, overwrites that barbed wire, right? Um, And in a lot of ways, I think... Do you
2: think that was her message, really? Her outlook in the future, Mm -hmm. that uh, native culture will always be strong, even though there are so many challenges? um...
1: Yeah, I think when you read these, I mean, I think you read them from the top to the bottom. Um, This is the argument I make in the book. And when you read them from the top to the bottom, you start at the moment of modernism. Mm -hmm. You start in the 1930s and you move forward in a developmental kind of sequence into something like this, which is a claim for indigenous futures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not here as a kind of person who thinks about the future, but I'm here as a historian who's thinking about someone in the 30s who is thinking, <laughs> I think, about the future. Again,
0: the,
2: the, you know, the slipstream we... is coming exactly. to the place. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a question. I, this is so beautiful. The work is so beautiful, yeah. and it's also landing to me as a kind of mapping, like a cartography, like mm-hmm. not so much in the linearity of it, but in the relationality of it. Yeah. And that seems really, in the indigenous future, sort of vain, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, I think it goes to sort of indigenous epistemological kinds of traditions. In my view, it's been really simple to sort of juxtapose kind of linear thinking and cyclical thinking. And I think this isn't really quite right, you know. um, It implies, you know, that there's not sort of like like, rigorous logical function in the indigenous thought, and there totally is, right? I mean, one of the things that happens with, you know, the theories of erasure is people think indies are stupid, and it's just wrong, right? And I think we have to resist that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think there is both a linearity here and a relationality, and I think that's exactly, you know, what ends up happening. You can't look at the things, I mean, I try to read them both in a linear way and in a relational way. Right, they're both a collection and a story at the same time. Mm-hmm.
2: There are other works, um, important works like Indian Church, where I can sense there's an outlook into the future. I think the top panel show, shows mainly women um, looking kind of towards the future. Um, did you get a sense by studying Mary Sally's work that um, um, she really emphasizes the role of women as um, culture keepers, as um, community members who actively shape the future?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about her is she's traveling with her sister, my other great aunt, Ella Deloria, who was a really prominent early um, ethnographer who worked with Franz Boas at Columbia. And as Ella Deloria is theorizing culture, she is foregrounding women in the central kind of role. She says something, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but she says something like, If all the native women disappeared today and the men married took white wives, the language and the culture would die. Women are culture keepers, right, in her theory of culture. um, It was very, very important to, um, to her. Neither of them married. They traveled together with each other for their whole lives. Susie's always been sort of seen as the kind of, like, one that really wasn't that, you know, wasn't that great. And Ella was the smart one. And it's totally clear to me that, like, they're both geniuses, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they are geniuses in genius dialogue with one another about all of these kinds of mm-hmm, issues. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that leads to my next question. So so Ella's role was always the one to yeah, look after her sister. That's what um, my sense was when I read your book. And um, they both tried hard. to They tried um, to find a role for Susie, Mary Sully. Um, With help of Ella, they lined up exhibitions for Mary, mainly at Indian schools. Mm -hmm. Um, Ella tried to um, get her um, a contract as illustrator for her ethnographic publications. Um, And then Ella writes so many letters to so many people, often asking for a loan or Um, asking also the WPA um, officials um, that uh, Mary could get enrolled in one of those um, public art projects. And um, it never quite works out. And um, part of it has probably to do with um, living on a remote reservation, but part probably has to do with times, um, what uh, do you think were the main challenges? Besides um, Mary's uh, struggle with her illness or with her shyness, what do you think were the main challenges for a female artist at that time?
1: Well, I mean, I think for her one of the challenges is, you know, she's right in the heart of the New Deal and all of the different New Deal arts projects that are going on. Um, And, you know, she benefits from it not at all. Um, But I think it's partly because she's in some ways like she is a futurist who is drawing on older kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And part of those older things are uh, Lakota Dakota sort of visual traditions and epistemological traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an argument that I make about the figure of the double woman who's a really kind of important figure. Um, And these are women who are doubling and tripling and quadrupling their identities all the time. But it's also that I think they come out of an older sort of style of interacting through the Episcopal church. These are church women, um, two generations of uh, people in the church. And that's a kind of a very patronage-based, insider, network-based kind of thing. And when Ella tries to take that sort of mode of operating, I'm going to send a bunch of letters back channel and I'm going to get John Collier to come up with some money. and so It just doesn't work in the context of the kind of government apparatus that is built in the New Deal where you have to fill out applications okay. and have references and things like that. So so it's ironic that at the moment when there's a lot of money actually flowing to artists, vernacular artists um, uh, like Susie or Mary, um, she doesn't really actually benefit from that at all. And so her art stays underground Mm -hmm. throughout the 30s and into the 40s. And then, you know, there's this kind of moment in the 40s when all of a sudden abstract expressionism sort of explodes and her stuff now looks really kind of archaic. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what she's doing, I think, is prefiguring Andy Warhol and Lichtenstein and Definitely. pop art and you know the fascination with celebrity. Maybe we should look at another image because she's really fascinated with celebrities. And there's, I think, a couple more here. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy, Sir Malcolm Campbell, was a famous race car driver. Um, <laughs> and he always drove a car called the Bluebird. And so once you know that, you can see that the top image stops being abstract and becomes representational. These are speed racing tracks, the bluebird is a car, he's got these racing goggles. And then the second image, that sort of notion of speed sort of takes off in this kind of Celtic electron pattern. And then you get this sort of Thunderbird-y kind of look in in the bottom panel. And then we should look at the last one. And so these are kind of how these are, these are sort of how they play out in, in most of the images. Yeah. Fred Astaire, he's a tap dancer, and all of a sudden we get these sort of attempt to sort of capture time and space around um, the movement of feet, which then turns into kind of an interesting sort of tile pattern, you know, perhaps in a kaleidoscope, right? I mean, so the mm-hmm. images are super evocative and interesting and, and when so you think complex,
2: about it. And so complex, and that's yeah. so fascinating yeah. about them. It's not just one easy read. This is this now you really have to spend time with them. and
1: Yeah, and the, the more you know about the personality, the richer the images get. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and
2: the tragic part is really these works can hold up against any Marston Hartley or John Maron. but uh, I think it's also part of the time that it was a very male, white male dominated mm-hmm. time. I think the only exception we have is Georgia O'Keeffe, but one could argue that the only reason why she got featured was because she was married to Alfred Stieglitz. And so it was really tough for female
3: artists in general. Can I ask a really specific question? Uh, Okay, do you think that the double woman, double woman, the cult of double woman is related to dreaming, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that, and it makes sense if she shuts herself in, that she's staying inside to just dream and make Artwork about? Do you think that she was a? I'm assuming she, of course, she's aware because of all of Ella's research about. Do you think she was thinking about d- being embodying that sort of? Person?
1: Maybe. So it doesn't it doesn't show up in an evidentiary sort of way. There's not a letter saying like I have identified the you know. But of course, the double woman dream is not necessarily a dream you talk about that much, right? Because it has both really positive kind of characters and connotations, but also has very dangerous ones as well. You know, having to do with, for example, promiscuity and things like that. Um, but I think it is a sort of way of thinking about the fact that, like, art, and uh, is a spiritual practice, right? And that the double, the figure of the double woman says to us, "Yeah, you can practice your skill in your craft, but like the double woman dream, right? I mean, you get." the gift. its You don't have to necessarily learn it, it comes to you Force, because, and it's I mean, a gift. Or it's maybe
3: forced right? upon you and like, like, a, like a, what must feel like an illness. Yeah, you know? I
1: mean it's, it's, a, it's not unlike a sort of hayoka dream that you don't really want to have, but when you have it, you it's know, your responsibility. you're in it and you're responsible to it. Yeah, exactly. Cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Aja and Kite, now hearing more about Mary Sally, do you think um, native artists have it, female native artists have it easier today or do you think nothing really has changed?
0: And new challenges.
2: New challenges. Yeah, I just feel
0: like so. that, uh, that seems like such a trick question. <laughs> um, I think that, that, yeah, there's like, I mean, that this is happening right now in this moment, right, with all these folks, um, it, is, a, is a moment in time. And yeah, that, just, that feels tricky. That's like mm-hmm. a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: it's good that we're here. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I would like to ask you a few questions. Um, okay. So I'm I'm really excited that I can go to the the Sweetland Opera mm-hmm. tomorrow, which you were a really big part in. Um, can you describe for our audience what was this process like? You wrote the libretto. Was it a lot of? I mean, we mentioned it's an experimental opera, so it will be really interesting. Um, the audience is kind of part of the whole process. Was the um, uh, creation, the the writing, very similar, very experimental? Was there a lot of collaboration? And uh, were you able to shape maybe some of
0: the characters? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much to say. And then Susanna and I had a very interesting conversation that I'm probably going to hold back on because I need to process (laughs) a little bit (laughs) (laughs) before we came out about the potentiality of of whatever um so so yeah um I I mean the the thing about opera which is a new experience for me is Mm -hmm. the libretto is sort of like where it begins but the libretto is not where it ends right Mm -hmm. you know I am not as an author in control of Mm -hmm. actually the meaning Mm -hmm. um, because the meaning is going to be complicated and expanded upon and and transformed by, you know, staging and the musicality and the composition and, um, and even the way the audience move moved through the story. So until I see it, I almost won't know, right? Like how, mm-hmm. how, how things have evolved. Um, I think the thing that uh, was really important for us was to um, really, and, and here's where I will differ from some of the, like the marketing text, to really complicate the ways in which acts of erasure, which you named, mm. we, we, I think we've all probably spoken to, are, are, are undeniable and also never fully possible, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also kind of could go back to an indigenous futurism mm-hmm. tentative if you want to make that connection, um, which I guess I'm trying to. Um, so that's really important. Um, and, and, and that Sweet Land, which mm-hmm. um, Douglas named, you know, coming from Sweet Land, Of the Icing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, Tizabim is both simultaneously America and not, because Mm -hmm. you know there's like the settler colonialism here. There's settler colonialism in the Middle East. There's you know global colonialism. There's the ways in which you know once colonized are colonized. You know like the the complexities Mm -hmm. of all of that. And so you know our our interest was to be specific enough and also oblique enough that mm-hmm. there were opportunities to reflect on other ways in which these things are happening, um, sort of always already happening. There mm-hmm. um, uh, there many brainstorming meetings where you all sat together. We had and, brainstorming meetings and, and and in and Berlin, t- is actually where also, we started. I'm like, why so are you we go. in Berlin? I just have no idea. <laughs> it's so it's inspirational. Lovely there. <laughs> it was on the, we were on a lake, it was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we had a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. the the the, uh, the initial impetus for the opera was something different, oh, okay. um, which we we eschewed <laughs> yeah. in Berlin. Um, but there are some tenets that that have sort of remained, which is a, about like the arrival to a place mm-hmm. that is fully occupied wow. and the interaction that 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 can take place, mm-hmm. um, in particular when there's misunderstandings of all kinds of things. Um, so that sort of tenet has mm-hmm. remained. Um, and yeah, it was super collaborative and we spent a lot of times talking about what it couldn't do, right? Mm-hmm. Like oh. it was not possible to do certain things mm-hmm. um, in the context of an opera. Am I not talking loudly enough? Oh, that's not working. Is this working? I can't see anything because there's a, just a huge bright light <laughs> happening. Um, like nobody could be here and I would just be like. Oh. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so we started, started a lot mm-hmm. with like what couldn't happen, like yeah. what we really probably couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, with the audience and mind, or, yeah, um, I, or even just with the subject matter, uh-huh. you know, because there's a way in which opera is so over the top mm-hmm. that, it, you know, it could... Um, it, cause, it could cause mm-hmm. immense damage to oh, okay. some of um, the themes and symbolism that we were trying to explore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did spend a lot of time sort of, like, charting a terrain that seemed doable and interesting, um, that we all could sort of align around, because that's the thing about collaboration, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm echoing now, um, mm-hmm. is that everyone brings to it like the thing they most care about. And so mm-hmm. we very tenderly tried to hold what we all cared about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I don't know if I answered your question, yes, but maybe you that did. doesn't matter.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Um The Sweetland is also described as an opera that erases
0: itself. Can you describe that more? Yeah, so I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've said this a couple times. Yeah, so we so Douglas and I in particular, and, and you know, as the writers, like we started it again, but we're mm-hmm. not, you know, we're not the artistic directors. Um, we were interested in the act of erasure and the resistance and the ways in that, in which that resistance looks differently in different contexts. Like there's not one, back to your Mm -hmm. point of like anti-colonizing or decolonizing ourselves, like they look different, those acts of resistance. And there is always, um, the way I was thinking about it was just, you know, in, in art, you know, or like even sketching, you can sketch a line and you can erase the line, but there will always be some residue of that action. And so that was what we were engaging in, was like, what what might that act of resistance Mm -hmm. um, transform into, and yet what are the the contours and echoes and ghostings that would still be present? Mm -hmm. Because there is no full erasure that's possible. Mm -hmm. So the main idea
2: was, or one of the goals is to reveal the uh, colonizer's mechanism
0: of Eraser of history, in this case, Native history? It's more than Native. I mean, there mm-hmm. are, are a number of um, Native artists involved in the project, mm-hmm. more so than any other um, background or identity. But um, it's, you know, it's operatic, so it's sort of oblique. It's not like, and here this person comes in and attempts to you know, take this person's land and then this person is like, no, and then this person is like, but I'm actually the person you should be speaking to. Like, it's not that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's more that, like, you know, thinking about, so I'm really interested in um, climate resilience. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm on the board of an amazing group, Mycelian Youth Network, and they are teaching youth predominantly indigenous ways of living in a climate challenged world. Um, and, and some of them are not indigenous, some of them are like very classic scientific water filtration systems. Um, but there are, they're, all, they're all ways of dealing with the moment that we're in and you know what we do know is that the privatization and the ownership of things makes our collective ways of addressing this context very, very challenging mm-hmm. because things are owned and things cannot be moved. And, you know, like just the fires, right? I live in a, a very rural area, a very fire um, likely space. And the, if the amount of money that is spent to preserve private, you know, Malibu, right, it burned. Um, mm-hmm. my, my mother actually grew up in Latigo Canyon and she burned out twice. Um, but the amount of money that is invested in continuing to maintain uninhabitable spaces because they're privatized. So I think I'm a little bit tangenting. But that, to me, was a super interesting piece Mm -hmm. of resistance, erasure, Mm -hmm. and um, what it will take, actually, for us to get out of the moment that Mm -hmm. we're in. Mm
2: -hmm. Would you say the opera is also Um, site-specific?
0: It is not. And that's another interesting Uh conversation we started to have in Uh in the green room. It is not. I mean, the the writing of it did not happen here. Okay. Um, none of the folks involved in the project, except for the choreographer, is Tongva, um, but like it didn't. It didn't start with like it's going to be in L.A. Um, you know, we're going to start with um, you know the 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 traditional lands of a particular people and explore that story. We very much sort of started on the east and moved west in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the production, and again, I'm not holding this piece, so you'll have mm-hmm. to speak to other folks about that, um, is very much engaging in what it means to be inside and outside. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of like the construction of the opera and how, how uh, my understanding is the audience will experience it. But in terms of the place that we're in, mm-hmm. no. Okay, mm-hmm.
2: um, and I'm not familiar with the historic State Park, but I understand um, the guests, the visitors, they will be divided at a certain point um, and then experience different perspectives of perspectives of American history. Will they then be reunited at a certain point? and was the idea kind of to get uh, uh, reconciliation, to, to, have, to contribute to re- reconciliation. I think there were some discussions in the green room as well. Ah, she so
0: you heard the discussion. So, it, it must
3: be so hard. I have my. Like, like, it must be so hard to talk about this offer before it's been premiered. Well, I haven't
0: seen it, right? I haven't seen it either. No one's seen it. No one's seen it.
3: No, no. I look uh, forward to seeing and, it. Oh, you know, and there were
0: images, like, if I had I thought about it, like I, I could have pulled all kinds of things off social media. Um, wait. Well, oh the, 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 the pow- dividing, yeah, dividing yeah, yeah. yeah um so one of one of the really important ideas in particular to Eyal Sharon who is the artistic director of the industry was to have an experience in which and you know and it was it's it true for all of us but i think that the impetus really came from him is that it was about having the audience have different experiences mm-hmm. and that the meaning making that was being done um, separately, was then, then folks are coming together and, and like what is the reconciliation of the meaning making? Not a reconciliation mm-hmm. of people, okay. but a reconciliation or even a reckoning of our different perspectives and the meaning making that ensues from that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that's a lot about like how the structure is playing into some of the themes we're exploring. Mm-hmm. And you all should come.
2: Um, the opera, I understand. Uh has to do a lot with American history, but in the end, will there be also a moment where um, the audience experience an outlook into the future? Are there any futuristic elements?
0: So there is, the way that I wrote the end of the opera, (laughs) I don't know what it's going to look like, (laughs) um, was there's a very androgynous, Mm multiracial figure, individual figure... Um, who is experiencing the dislocation and disconnection from past um, and from tradition. And there are sort of ghosts or echoes of the past that I was thinking a lot about Kara Walker's work, like the- Yeah, the silhouettes. Yeah, the silhouettes, like in these very like specific gestures, mm-hmm. referencing particular aspects of, um, of history and that, that the dialogue um, with this figure spec. And and these sort of ghostings sort of prefigures both an emptiness and a possibility that, that comes from from reconnection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who knows if that's what will that end up <laughs> happening, I don't know. So one of the composers is Raven Chacon, and
2: um, some of you might know his work. He was part of Postmodern. Um, post-commodity, and he's now as a sound artist. Um, what about the music? Um, knowing that he is one of the composers, um, will we experience a lot of futuristic sounds, maybe?
0: Yeah, he likes, he likes really aggressive sounding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's gonna be a mix. You the, both the composers, so do Young and Raven, Chacon, did some collaboration, and that you know stylistically they're both different, and they also both share mm-hmm. a real interest in, in like really kind of violent percussive gestures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there will be some, and you know like for all of us, the collaboration brought out different parts of our own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the pieces that I've heard, and I haven't heard all the compositions, um, I think that they will sound both similar some of his work and really, really mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. I think all of us were exploring different you know, aspects of artistic practice. Mm-hmm. And that's the lovely invitation mm-hmm. of collaboration, right? You get to move into spaces mm-hmm. that you might not have been in. Yeah.
2: Um, as a librettist, um, how do you see the future of native opera? Is that um, something
0: that? Yeah, well, let me tell you the yeah. future of native opera. <laughs> um, so this is my first libretto. OK. <laughs> <laughs> I am a poet. Um, I think that, that opera is a really interesting platform mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. play out a lot of the things that, that you have been talking about, Suzanne, and that um, it's your aunt or your great, great aunt, your great aunt um, was exploring because it, it allows so many different dimensions you know, mm-hmm. of sound and image um, and language. So I love the idea, and I have no idea.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope for a bright future. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you are, of course, also a poet, and uh, is uh, the future of futurism, indigenous futurism, also a topic you're interested in as a poet?
0: Yeah, um, the the book that I just most recently finished is... I mean, it's all time, it's always all time, but the the sort of... I think of it as almost a lyric novel, the, the, and it's, I'm doing this, like, as you did, you're like, the arrows go this way. The left side of the, the page is in, in prose form, and it's, um, from a first person plural, so from a we, and it's a present tense, but it takes place in the future, mm-hmm. and then the right side is, you know, like, kind of line breaks and is, um, much more about, about the past from, like, um the arrivals or the invasions to different kinds of constructions of treaties and land um, theft, um, pestilence, disease, attempts for like just individual humans to try to find intimacy with one another. Mm -hmm. And then this this present slash future plurality kind of reckoning with both the moment that they're in in the future and then the past and um, so it is very much that, and it's so funny because I don't think I ever thought that I was doing that until we're mm-hmm. having this conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm like, huh, oh, maybe I'm a made a futurist. Who knew? <laughs> okay. Hi,
1: my name is Natasia, and I identify with the Asian Pacific Island diaspora. And I wanted to ask, in terms of futurism, how do you also deal, not just with um, the colonial and the outside forces, but because generations have... Um, experience this erasure and being told that this old, this um, native, this uh, savage culture is not good, how do, you, um, how do you deal with those of your people that have that attitude as you try to um, bring your culture towards the future? Um, <laughs> why are you guys looking at me? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, we, if we think about the generations of different kinds of native people, and I, I want to sort of emphasize how different these things can be across time and space, um, you know, uh, that there are certain moments, if we went back, for example, you know, to the 1940s and 50s, we'd find a lot of native people saying, oh, you know, we've been trained to believe that our culture is a bad thing and we want everybody to learn English and everything like that. But that is not what people say today, you know. And so I think some part of it is that, like, those were certain generational things and over time those those kinds of um, sort of internal colonialisms, right, where we sort of psychologically bought into these kinds of things, those things have really attenuated. So the struggle looks a little different now, right? I mean, the struggle is to sort of imagine what you can recapture. And this is one of the things I think it's super interesting and important about the ways that indigenous cultural production happens today, is that futurity, right, is also this sort of occasion for these amazing sort of reclamations of past practice, you know? So, um, and these things are partly, these things are retentions that sort of sit there in ways that are mysterious, Right, that they come back to you in mysterious ways that we don't really understand, or maybe some of us do understand, maybe I'm not including me in the us, but, um, and some of them are literal sort of reconstructions and reinventions, right, of things which were present in the past and which have been remade. So it, it feels to me like, like the futurity part of this is actually where the excitement is, um, you know, right now. And I think it extends to sort of this question about like, what does it look like? It seems that to me it looks like getting more people doing more things, Um, We were talking about sort of native Facebook as this kind of like no one can give it up because everybody is sort of dialoguing all the time, Um, expanding into more genres like you know opera or science fiction or graphic novels or whatever, right? And I think this sort of experiments with form that are sort of characteristics of all this kind of art that we've been talking about today.
3: Yeah, I just want to mention um, that you know I feel like that the indigenous diaspora is what makes us united over this idea of indigeneity that we can connect like from. Uh, Lakota Futures to Oceanic Futures to um, Futures across and so I just want to recommend I think Leoli Ashragi is a good friend of mine who works in Oceanic Futures so highly recommend Mm -hmm. Leoli's work and Super exciting time to to be working as an indigenous person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Lily House Peters and this is for I think particularly for Kite, but anybody could respond and I was curious with how you think about like technological or data sovereignty in this moment where the privatization and kind of datafication um, or privatization of data and datafication is going on, and what kind of a Lakota ethic or ontology around data sovereignty might look like, or technological sovereignty thinking forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big question in our in the um, Indigenous Protocols and Artificial Intelligence project, is looking at um, what we want for data sovereignty. And of course, if we wanna talk about sovereignty at all, it's gonna be tribal specific, um, you know, it has to do with are we able to be self-sovereign in any way, and especially with our data. But data is kind of a special place, and I think AI is a very great place to come to this conversation, because it's in AI and in data, where we can, as it is, people were like, oh, we'd like you to not steal our anything. And then, but we share that with, um, we share that uh, vision with, so- with data sovereignty with a general population as well. Other people don't want their things stolen. And so when you look at, I'm thinking about um, Kate Crenshaw's Kate Crawford's uh, AI mapping project, where you've got the only people who don't, who are paid less than miners for a material thing, and our data is material, are, are, are people who use um, these technologies. And so and my goal through Lakota Ontology is to say that, um, all, okay, first of all, you need to imagine that AI and tech, everything revol- involving technology, including our data, is a material thing, our human bodies Um, are being, we are still material, and then to consider uh, all things as worthy of being, then we cannot just steal from anything. And so I think one of the most important Lakota ethics to me is that you need to give more than you take for everything. If I'm gonna take a willow branch to build a sweat lodge, then I need to give something very important to me, even a piece of my body, a piece of my hair, because I need to give more than I'm taking from that thing, and I cannot take more than I should be taken. And so why not that same structure for anything especially our data, our information about ourselves, our bodies, and then what about for um, the things that we mine, you know, so that's my take.
1: Okay, hi, thank you, my name's Esperanza. I have a question regarding the opera. Um, it's something that is very significant and very important, something that I think is something that people should be seeing. It's the, is there another project that you are considering to do beyond
0: this one um, regarding the, the opera? You're welcome to invite me into a new project. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I mean, I'm very hopeful that all kinds of other collaborations will emerge as a result of this. Um, And to date, I'm, I'm still just a poet. So um, we've been talking about a lot of really big ideas like colonialization, really kind of macro concepts, and a lot of the work that you guys do like with the opera with going into like tangible characters that the audience is actually gonna be maybe kind of close to in a a field. Uh, And and then I was looking, Suzanne, like at your braids, Like, like that's really close and tangible and personal. I was wondering how do you, How do you conceive of that going from this, these really big concepts that are the subject of the piece, but try to um, like shrink it down into a character or something that somebody's gonna say, oh yeah, I really identify with that.
3: I think that, uh, well, I didn't make the braids because other people would identify them. I made them because um, I identify with them. Uh, And then my, I want, most important to me is to make sure that my work is legible to my family members um, and when that is successful, then I'm successful. Uh, so if my grandfather, uh, uh, Bill Stover, uh, gets what I'm doing, then then I'm I'm golden. Um, and uh, so when I think about distilling very large ideas, I do do a very, uh, do a difficult thing to myself where I take a really really big concept. I'm like, I want to deal with ontology, to, you know, in this piece. Mm-hmm. There's something like un- to, absolutely ungraspable, especially for me. And then I try to ask myself questions to distill it down into, okay, so in my project Listener, I wanted to make a character, so I made a backstory um, for this character, the Listener. And then I specifically asked myself, like what kind of, what world does she live in? And then um, what does, what remains? Like in seven generations, if let's say we have a complete and utter, you know, sci-fi style apocalypse, you know, what, what of Lakota ontology um, will remain? What do I want to still be there? And I definitely wanted a relationship to material things like um, and a relationship to our hair to still be there and to still be um, at the, the root you know pun intended of, of, <laughs> of what um, of what we consider to be our um, the beginning of our non our more than human relations so a hair reaches out into the world and, and begins to Across that divide because it's it's not living but it is attached to something that's living and then on to computer a uh, computer part which is a, a seemingly non-human non-moving um, uh, non-animated thing but to the Lakota, it's extremely animated the most animated so that's how I get mm-hmm. that that one so
0: that's beautiful um,
3: I I just think that like I
0: this this corporeal form is the vehicle through which I experience life um, and is not separate from anything else, right? It's like an illusion that we're separate. Um, And so I both use my emotions, my body, touch, taste, you know, the senses. And I like open myself up to information that doesn't reside in me. Um, So I think that in that way, I'm connecting, you know, ancestrally you know I write about I write from the point of view of bears and mountains and you know all sentient things Um, and I think in doing so um, people are invited into a greater or like a closer proximity Um, I think that that's sort of like the purpose and point Um, although I won't say that I'm doing it because it's a purpose and point I'm doing it because I must like it is the only way I know how to be Um, but it does have the I think, the effect of bringing people into closer proximity.
1: If I could just add, too, I mean, you know, history is oftentimes framed as a social science, but it's really an aesthetic practice, I, I think. And, you know, a good historical practice is to find the small story that will tell its own analysis. If I tell this little story, and I don't have to be saying, that's about race and gender, right? If the story actually tells you that, then it's a really good piece of evidence for me, right? Because it only requires a light hand. And the best stories are the ones that are small stories that speak in and of themselves right, to those large things. And I think like, as a historian, you're always questing for that. You're always looking to try to put those things together. And in some ways, that's kind of what you guys have just described. Right? Or there's a moment, right, it crystallizes for us, as the people who are creating it, that actually ends up unfolding and speaking, and oftentimes in ways that we can't anticipate, either. even as historians, making rational, linear arguments and all that stuff. <laughs>
0: So I think we'd like to welcome you all to come join us at the reception. um,
1: And please first give another round of applause to our (laughs) guests.